Um, so we're looking at 2 Corinthians and continuing in that passage today, and I'm indebted to Richard um, for the loan of his book, and he referred to it when he was preaching a couple of weeks ago on powerful fellowship. And in an effort to understand today's passage, I pounced on the book, um, which is probably, if I'm really honest, aimed at somebody a few rungs higher up the theology ladder than I am. But you know what? When you're preaching on Paul, you take any help that you can get in my very limited experience. So here we go. Um, I wonder if there's anybody here in the congregation who is a people pleaser. Have you ever done something that you didn't really want to do in order to please somebody else? Or maybe keep the peace? Or maybe impress somebody else? My answer is yes to all the above. Don't get me wrong, it's right very often to do something for others. We're, we're called to do that. Each time I watch a war film at the cinema with my husband, rather than the rom-com that I really want to watch, I remind myself that blessed are the peacemakers. But sometimes the outcome of people-pleasing can be a bit more serious than 120 minutes of guns, bombs and fighter jets. I'm reminded of the time when I nearly went to Bristol University to study French and ancient Greek, simply because my sister and my brother had been to Bristol before me, and that was what my parents wanted me to do. My brother shared a flat with the guy who did the intake for French, and I got an amazing offer of two Cs. Everybody else was you know, 76 A stars, and there, well, there weren't A stars in those days, and I was on two Cs. However, at the 11th hour, I saw sense. I knew that Bristol wasn't the right place for me, and I galloped off to Nottingham instead, where I could read French and American studies, which frankly was far more up my street than ancient Greek. It was a disaster averted, but I was trying to be a people pleaser. So today, we're looking at chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, where Paul has the challenge of whether or not to become a people pleaser or not. Up until now in 2 Corinthians, what we've been looking at, and Paul has been talking to the repentant minority of the Christians of Corinth, and he's been encouraging them to stop straying, to stick to Christ and his teaching. But in this passage, he turns to the unrepentant minority. In chapter 10, poor old Paul is frankly under serious personal attack by his enemies for his ministry style. I know the feeling, Paul. It's a tough gig, isn't it? Um, he's criticized for being bold when writing, but rather weak and timid when preaching in person. And I have to say, the very fact that Paul comes under criticism is, is probably, in a weird way, an encouragement. With Paul, despite everything he's done, all the churches he's established, all the, the, the evangelizing that he's done, if he is under criticism, then I, then I guess it proves that you just cannot please all the people all the time. And Paul's stance on this is not to be a people pleaser, but to be a God pleaser. His only concern is to keep God happy. He doesn't really care about the minority of Christians in Corinth and if they think that his preaching is a bit pathetic. He doesn't answer to them. He answers to God. 
And I guess if we all cared a little bit less about what others thought of us and a bit more about what God thought of us, that would probably be a good start, wouldn't it? And I guess another encouragement we can draw, assuming that there was an element of truth in the criticism of Paul, is that God will find a way to use us even though we have flaws. Nobody is perfect. And, and that's why we have church, isn't it? We have church so that we can all do different things. As Nicola was praying earlier, you know, we are church. Church isn't something that's done to us. It's not something we receive. We are church. So in chapter 10, in verse 1, Paul starts his response on this attack. And he writes, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. If I paraphrase that and put it in sort of Ruth terminology, he's saying, you may think that being meek and mild and gentle is to be weak. But actually, if you recall, guys, Christ was meek and gentle. And so by emulating him, I too walk and talk with his power and strength. So there. What a great argument, one in one simple phase, phrase. Paul's enemies considered humility as a weakness and not as a grace. Their arrogance was totally at odds with Christ's values. So as his starter for 10, Paul demolishes their accusation that his meek and gentle nature is a sign of weakness, whereas really it's a sign of power and authority. In verse 2, he pleads with the majority not to side with this rebellious minority. But he asks them gently. He doesn't command them. He asks them gently, I beg you. And he begs so that he won't have to be bold with them. He doesn't want to wage war with them, but if he has to, he most certainly will. However, Paul's methods of warfare are totally unconventional. As he says in verses 3 and 4, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. And with two kids as officers in the army, I know a thing or two about fighting with some of the weapons of the world. And yes, there is my son carrying a gun there, which is not great. The weapons of the world that Paul is referring to here are more manipulative and deceitful ways, smooth words, empty rhetoric, rather than the physical weaponry. So what weapons is Paul talking about? If we look about what he wrote in Ephesians, I'm sure we all know the passage, Ephesians 6, um, chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, we have a description of those weapons. The weapons that Paul uses against his enemies and the enemies of Christ. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, and feet protected by the gospel. And it is the telling of the gospel in particular that is Paul's weapon in this passage. Paul wants the Corinthians to stay rooted in the truth of the gospel, the, the discipline of the gospel. And that's how he plans to keep them close to Christ and destroy the false arguments of this Corinthian minority. 
And Paul continues to pile up those military terms. He talks about waging war, weapons, warfare, strongholds. And in so doing, he's portraying his ministry as a mighty force or army that will win out at the end of the day. And what makes him so confident about this? Because in verse 4, his weapons have divine powers to destroy strongholds. Now, there are many references in the Bible to um, divine power destroying strongholds. I can think of David and Goliath, for example. The walls of Jericho, um, which came down as they sang and marched around and blew a horn or two. But Paul isn't only thinking about physical strongholds here. He's also thinking about things that have a stronghold in our minds. The sin that takes hold of us. Anything that sets itself up in verse 5 against the knowledge of God. Paul's objective for those Corinthians and for us in the second half of verse 5 is that we take captive every thought we have and make it obedient to Christ. In Kent Hughes's book, um, in this book, he says, could anything be more wonderful than to have every thought experience captive obedience to Christ? Could anything be more beautiful? There's a battle going on in the minds of the Corinthians, and they will need to pray and stay close to the gospel and stay true to the commands of Christ if they're to win that battle. You may recall that one of our own church values um, is that we're in a spiritual battle, but on the winning side. But a battle against what? A battle against who and for what? What exactly are the spiritual battles that we are fighting today? What are the strongholds in your life that need to be broken? Is it a serious addiction? A bad habit, a wrong attitude, an idol, a misplaced focus. Or maybe we're just at risk, like the Corinthians, of straying a little too far from the truth. Last week in the 10.30 service, Stephen, who was preaching, challenged us to imagine that if Jesus were in charge of our bank accounts, what would he do? Well, this week, I challenge you that if Jesus were in your mind and your thoughts and your actions last week, would he be pleased with what he saw? I have to say he might be a little disappointed with me. But spend a time, some time later on today, perhaps, just to look back at your last week and do a little sort of balance sheet, things you think he might be pleased with and those that he might be less pleased with. I did this, I looked at the money I spent, I looked at how I spent my leisure time and how much of it was still weirdly in front of a screen, how much time I gave to prayer, how much time I gave to reading my Bible and deepening my relationship with God. And very luckily for me, I was preparing this sermon. So actually the balance sheet looked not too bad, not too unhealthy. But I think in another week, it might not have looked quite so good. And that was a bit of a salutary lesson to me. I've got quite a few strongholds that could do with being won over. And quite a lot of thoughts that are not obedient to Christ. My favorite word, obedient, again. 
I'm pretty sure I'm not alone in this, and I think it's important though, that we know how to break these chains and let Christ in to win that battle of our minds and not the world or the devil. But the good news is that we can take up exactly the same weapons that Paul took up um, in this fight, the weapons that have divine power to help us in these battles. Prayer, the word of God, truth, confidence in our faith and in our salvation. All these things can and should be deployed by us and will help us to make every one of our thoughts obedient to Christ wherever we lead our lives. For the first 15 years or so of my working life, I didn't have a close relationship with God particularly. In fact, to be honest, I don't think I had a relationship with him at all. And I would never have dreamt about praying for my work. Even as my relationship with God grew, I tended to use weapons of the world to help me fight in the world. I used my own strength. I relied on my own intellect, my own ability to write or speak, my own personal charm and charisma. In short, I used the weapons of the world to fight those battles. Partly I felt I didn't need God. Partly I felt that he couldn't possibly be interested in my work life. And sometimes things worked out okay, and sometimes they didn't. But little by little, as my relationship with him grew, I realized that he wanted to be part of all my life. And so I began to share more and more with him and invite him to be part of my life 24-7. I asked him for help in fighting those battles, whatever they might be. I invited it into my life more and more. And as I said earlier, clearly it's work in progress. I'm sure he would have something to say about my scream habit. But I rely on him much more now to guide me and much less my own strength. And it's so important for us to realize that no stronghold is too great for God to break. As he helped the Corinthians to follow the right path, the right leader, so too can he help us to make the right decisions about every part of our lives. Nothing is too big for God to tackle. So however bad, however entrenched we might believe our strongholds to be, God can and will destroy them if we fight not in our own strength but in his. He will win the battle for our minds if we ask him to and if we want him to. Some of you may have read the book by um, Richard Taylor called To Catch a Thief. And the strap line on the cover says, from career c criminal, when you can say it, career criminal, to a life of hope. And it's amazing to see how God changed him so completely. One minute, he's a heroin addict dealing drugs in prison. And the next, he's in his cell and cannot read enough of his Bible. That's what happens when you fight with divine weapons. Drawing to a close, um, the title that Nicola gave for this talk was Powerful Orthodoxy, which I have to say nearly got me heading for the hills. But orthodoxy is an authorized doctrine or practice, a discipline to adhere to. Paul is telling the Corinthians to adhere to the gospel of Christ in order to stay on the right path. 
he tells them, and of course us too, to rely on God, on his divine power to help us fight those inevitable battles that we have to face every day. Battles for our minds and ultimately battles for our souls. If we try and fight in our own strength, sometimes we may be very successful. But the real challenge comes when we meet our Goliath and we cannot fight in our own strength. We can't fight with worldly weapons. We're forced to turn to those divine weapons to have any hope of success. And if we know this, why not use those divine weapons now on a daily basis to help us and guide us on our journey with Christ? Let's follow this lesson of Paul to be meek and gentle like Christ. To embrace the gospel, to fight our battles from a position of weakness, not of strength, and not with weapons of flesh, but with his divine power in us. Think for a moment what the world might look like if everybody's thoughts were captive to Christ. I guess one day this will be the case. But until then, let's try and take part in Paul's challenge. Amen.